0: Welcome to this CNBC special, I'm John Fort. Jim Cramer is off tonight. The race to rescue the banking system leads to a relief rally to start the week as bank stocks bounce and the major averages following suit. The Dow jumping 382 points, the S&P climbing nearly 1%, and the tech heavy NASDAQ trailing behind, but still up nearly half a percent as investors now turn their attention to this week's Fed decision. But this won't be your typical Fed meeting. Bank chaos colliding with inflation Extreme market volatility, and that is changing the playbook for investors and the Fed. Preparing your portfolio for a critical 48 hours, what Wednesday's Wednesday's Fed decision could mean for the economy, for stocks, and for your investments. Let's get right into it. Joining us now is Katerina Seminetti, Senior Vice President at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management, and Jeff Kilberg, founder and CEO at KKM Financial and a CNBC contributor. Guys, welcome. Uh, Katarina, are are we perhaps focused on the wrong thing here if we're thinking that uh, no hike or 25 basis points is the focal thing? Is the real question how much banks are going to slow the economy all by themselves by extending less credit?
1: Well, John, it's a it's a good question. You know, when we are seeing the situation with the SVB Bank and other regional banks unfold, you know, the question is, you know, is this something that, you know, specifically, you know, is, is affecting the financial sector or perhaps as a direct result of the Fed action over the course of the last 12 months? And one thing we know for sure is that the growth is slowing. But from the Fed standpoint, is it slowing enough to get the inflation to where they need to be? And that's the big question that they will need to answer. And perhaps we have one or two more rate hikes on the horizon, but they're getting near to pivot. And uh, you know, it will be interesting to see you know where they end up. But we have a very data-driven fact, and they're going to be looking at all the data, including the situation with the banks.
0: Well, Jeff, is the Fed even really driving this bus anymore? I just I wonder, because I think at some point it was a question of <laughs> had the Fed set in motion a series of events that was going to slow the economy down regardless. And so it's less about watching what what does the Fed do? Does the Fed slam on the brake or not? And it's more about watching what the
2: economy and the market's doing all on its own. You're right, John. And the Fed has been notoriously horrible in any type of reaction. They were keeping rates too long too low all up to 2022. They were buying assets just up until February of 2022. So I think you bring up a great point, the Fed's reaction. However, Katerina brings up a great point about data-driven, but the Fed right now, I think they do know what they don't know. The next critical 48 hours is really going to be imperative for investors globally to understand. Will the Fed flinch? Will they flinch and pause, or will they stick on track and realize that the SVBs, the signature banks, and even First Republic to a certain extent, that is nuanced. Those are not big banks. Those are mismanaged treasuries. I'd love if I could have taught them how to trade treasuries back in the 90s at the Chicago <laughs> Board of Trade, John. But nonetheless, that is separate. So I think if you look at the bigger overall picture, the Fed is going to raise 25 basis points, but they're going to do that very dovish raise of rates, but they're going to give some type of forecast that they're going to wait and understand the uncertainty, because there is a ton of uncertainty, but I am cautiously optimistic that some of these nuanced banks are really not systemic to the economy. Katarina, sometimes
0: I think we can get lost in the details and not see what's obvious. I don't know whether this is one of those times or not, but are rates pretty much going to stay pretty high for a decent amount of time or right? If if they go lower, is it because we're in a serious recession? And therefore, like either one of those scenarios, what should an investor do here?
1: Well, John, the question is, is, is what effect all this slowing growth is having on earnings? And in our view, earnings are still way below the fair market value. And until they get down to more realistic levels, we're going to remain in this bear market territory. Well, so- when you
0: say that, when you say that, do you mean that Equities are expensive.
1: That's exactly what I'm saying. And while our longer-term out- outlook is positive, and we believe at some point Fed is going to start cutting rates, until we get there, our short-term outlook is quite negative. You know, we are bearish. We tell investors to be cautious. We tell them to shelter in place. This is not the time to change strategy, but, you know, to be ready for some extensive market volatility.
0: Because, Jeff, do you agree with that? Are stocks expensive here? And if we are heading into a recession, isn't it pretty much always the case that when that happens, the market makes
2: new lows? So, I mean, doesn't that mean don't buy any more stocks, maybe sell them? Well, John, with all due respect, Katarina and Morgan Stanley, but Morgan Stanley has had a house view. Of being more bearish. I'm looking more opportunistically and understanding sectors. And as you know, I run a sector rotation portfolio and understand what sectors are revealing strength and what sectors are revealing weakness. Certainly the theme that worked in 2022, which has been absolutely on its heels in 2023, has been energy. Mm-hmm. I foresee energy coming back. So if you look at XLE, if you look at Chevron, if you look at ExxonMobil, however you want to get into that exposure, I think now is the time why, to find that Jeff, exposure. Why does why does energy come back if the global economy doesn't come back? Well, that's where we disagree. I think the global economy comes back. Just two, three weeks ago, we were okay. getting all fired up about China coming back online. That's been put to the side because we're talking about Silicon Valley Bank and venture venture capitalism. So I think you do have the ability to go back and revert to the story and the theme of 2023. I get optimistic. Whenever you look at a post-midterm election year, typically the S&P 500 is up you know, double than the normal year. So I think there's a lot of areas. But you do have to be, to Katerina's point, you do have to be a selective Stock picker, you can't just buy healthcare. But if you like certain names in there, then it's understanding at these levels, these valuations, there may be value. We're big believers in owning Essential. I run the Essential 40 portfolio, which is blue chip, tangible names, boring names, John. But if you talk about international paper, waste management, you know, Costco, Masco, some of these names that t- typically don't get the attention, but there's also you have to be considered of the Googles, the Facebooks. They've had a great run. Why? It's all interest rate driven. We've seen the 10 year come back under 3.5%. There is opportunity, but you have to be very, very considered not to go over your skis in some of uh, the sectors that maybe will not perform if you have broad swath exposure. OK,
0: Katerina, I don't know. What, what do you say? I mean, energy is a bet on the global economy. And it sounds like those boring names that Jeff is talking about also tend to react to the macro. So are we heading into a slump where you stay away from that stuff or not?
1: John, I absolutely agree with Jeff. There is nothing wrong with boring names. As a matter of fact, dividend banks. Mm-hmm. stops defensive plays, you know, make all the sense in the world. You know, again, this is not a good time to exit stocks. You have to be selective. Mm-hmm. You have to pay valuations. You have to more focus on sectors like staples, healthcare, you know, energy, utilities that are buying opportunities in every sector, including technology. Hmm. You just have to be more selective. This is the stock pickers market. This is the time where the stocks we're going to earn, own during the recovery while we come out of the bear market. Because on average, bear markets last for about 18 months. We're in year two, and we're perhaps getting somewhere close to the end. But as we know historically, we, towards the end of the bear market, that's where investors get the most nervous. And this is where mistakes are made. But so what owning- if-
0: well, Katarina, what if some investors out there they're out of position, they're overweight stocks and not enough fixed income? How much fixed income should they have heading into the next year or two?
1: Well, John, this is you know a wonderful thing about the situation that there is something positive that is happening in the markets, that finally, after 20 years, we are not in the zero rate environment. We actually can get some substantial yields, both on cash and short-term uh, fixed income investments, but also longer term and diversified fixed income portfolio at this point, especially the one that is focusing on higher level credit, okay. higher quality. It makes all the sense.
2: Jeff, how would you do
1: it? Yeah,
2: I want to add on to that. And I think it's a great point. There is high yield and high quality for any of the bondholders in Credit Suisse, Credit Suisse has been a zombie bank for a long time. So I feel badly for those bondholders that absolutely got the rug pulled out from underneath them. But that noise, that type of conversation should not make you shy away. Credit Suisse was an absolute sideshow to what we're dealing with First Republic Signature Bank Silicon Valley Bank. So I think there is an opportunity. But even looking at the U.S. Treasury, nothing tastes and feels better than the safety of a U.S. Treasury if it's a one-year or two-year. There's still juicy yields in comparison. So I think you would be very considerate about risk suitability. But I think you have to block out some of the noise. The VIX isn't above 25. The U.S. dollar index is at 103. We're actually coiled technically in the S&P 500 to go back up and test 4,200. Yes, it's blasphemy to be optimistic during all this turmoil. But that is really when you have to keep a calm, cool, and collected head in this type of macro environment a little bullishness never hurt
0: anybody well not too badly maybe katarina jeff thank you thank you now as we head to break let's take a closer look at the banks that group starting to rebound the big bank and regional etfs both seeing moves higher today with all these backstops in place is now the time to buy the banks we're going to answer that question next we are just getting started on the cnbc special taking stock stay
3: with us tonight full fed ahead looking forward to the punches powell's packing plus tamp down and ramp up how to grow jobs and fight inflation and wave a magic bond cast an anti-volatility spell on fixed income when we return Welcome
0: back. The ongoing volatility in the financial sector is raising the stakes for the Fed's two-day meeting, which kicks off tomorrow. Investors are going to be focused on whether or not the Fed will pause its interest rate hikes, given the pressure that we've seen on several financial institutions after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Joining me now to break it all down is Chris Katowski, Managing Director and Senior Research Analyst at Oppenheimer. Chris, good evening. Thanks for being with us. So, I mean, let me ask an overbroad question first. Um, the KRE regional bank ETF is, uh, is still way down. Are the regional banks going to
4: be OK? Should people be buying it here? Well, yeah, I mean, the one I track more is the BKX, and that's down 24% since, uh, since March uh, 9th. So that's been quite, quite a move. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I do think Silicon Valley was an outlier. That there is nobody in that category. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at it, you know, roughly 60 percent of their uh, earning assets were securities of more than half of the industry. And, you know, you could already see as, as recent as early as the third quarter, you could see that they were an outlier because starting in the third quarter, their deposits started repricing faster or, than than their assets did and again in the fourth quarter, whereas the rest of the industry was different. So, you know, I understand why people are block booking these things, but, you know, there's a there's a huge degree, uh, degree of difference between Silicon Valley's makeup and, and the uh, uh, you know, typical regional bank. Okay, that being you know, said, that's though... All, you can see why people get get rattled. Yeah, well, what about the follow-on effects
0: here? If after uh, Silicon Valley Bank... Credit Suisse, Signature, some others, banks are less inclined to lend out and they've got to, you know, give their depositors more back anyway. I mean, do do net interest margins come in so far that eventually these stocks would get taken down anyway?
4: No, I don't think it's that kind of thing. If you look at the industry broadly, their so-called held to maturity uh, securities portfolio, which which is, you know, what the primary issue is. Is roughly equal to their long-term capital and long-term debt put together. That's for the industry broadly. It's it's about 89%. Was, I did the numbers. For Silicon Valley, it was four times. So, you know, for the most part, these banks they have some long-term assets, you know, in these health and maturity securities. They probably wish they had a bunch less of them. But on the other hand, it, it's kind of paired against a long term asset. Uh-huh. So you're still going to, for the most part, on on, on the banks have uh, a relatively short maturity uh, deposit life and a relatively short maturity loan book. And, you know, for most of the regional banks, I'm sure there'll be a period of adjustment. There may be a couple of bumps along the way. But but. You know, you, you give all this a year or two times to, and they, you can you can work through the problem. So is that problem, is that issue, that problem then
0: priced in here, given what you said, the, the you know, index that you watch is down
4: 24 percent since beginning of March? Yeah, well, one thing I've learned is that even if that is true, it doesn't mean it can't be more priced <laughs> no, than before right. it back. No. Right. And and. And the answer is, I do think uh, it's 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 more than priced in, though. You know, I won't vouch for how the stocks will trade for the next uh, month or so. You know, I mean, the you know, we're going to get some data. We're going to see, uh, you know, on, on Thursday, we're going to see how much the banks are into this uh, facility, special facility that the Fed put up. On Friday, we're going to get to see actual, um, you know, deposit numbers for, for the banks and the so-called H8 data. That comes out every Friday at 4:15, so we'll get little data points along the way, uh, but probably not really major data points until the banks uh, report in mid-March. You know, so I could easily see volatility, you know, up through March. You know, that said, two years from now, are, are most of these companies going to be fine? Uh, you know, and the bigger ones, I think, absolutely. So I've been trying to collect intelligence. From
0: uh, CEOs I know who, who are close to this, so today talk to Max Lefchen Max at a firm who, who's saying that yes, he is being more cautious about who on the consumer side they lend money out to. Talk to Rene uh at Bill, and he said, yes, lenders are they want more data on on these small businesses before offering lines of credit. So given that dynamic, what are you hearing or seeing about the degree to which these financial
4: institutions are going to be restrictive in offering out credit? I think if you talk to most of the big banks, which is what I cover primarily, they will all have a mantra that says We, uh, our credit box is a through the cycle credit box. We don't want to tighten it whenever there is a concern and loosen it whenever people are feeling good, that they want to underwrite for the cycle. And you hope that's right. And that should minimize those kinds of, um, you know, you you don't want that kind of dial up, dial down, you know, herky jerky kind of credit standards in the economy. I, I think the Fed doesn't want that. The banks don't want it. So you know, hopefully, hopefully, uh, there's a minimum of that going on. Certainly among the big banks, you know, that said, bankers are human too, and you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> when when you see this kind of uh, when you see this kind of tumult, it's only natural to uh, to 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 be extra cautious. And so I, I I can easily see that. But but for the most part, they're going to try to. Uh, similar credit standards or similar kind of loans. Well, it sounds like you're saying that the banks
0: are looking long term and that if investors do, too, there are some opportunities here. Chris, uh, thank you. Thank you. Now, coming up, the Fed entered 2023, focused on one goal, taming inflation. But over the past two weeks, that job has become a lot more complicated How inflation could be a major player in the Fed's will or will they not decision. That is next. And as we head to break, a look at some of the best and worst performing Dow stocks today. Welcome back. It's still dealing with high inflation, but the Federal Reserve faces an entirely new and in some ways conflicting challenge as it meets to consider interest rates this week. Prioritize the banking crisis or fight inflation. Bob Pisani joins us with more.
5: Hi, John. The Federal Reserve kicks off its two day meeting on Tuesday, and the big question is will they hike or won't they? It all gets down to what issue the Fed believes should be the most pressing concern. Should it be fighting inflation? or should it be avoiding a credit-induced recession caused by the banking crisis? The bulls are hopeful this banking crisis may have done what the Federal Reserve has been unable to do, which is bring down inflation at a faster clip. Why? Because the aftermath of this banking crisis will likely mean that bank lending will contract, and that will act as a break on the economy. That will be deflationary. Think about how much the outlook for rate hikes have changed two weeks ago the consensus was that the Fed was going to hike fifty basis points and continue hiking for the next several meetings well that's all gone now now there's only two different opinions and both of them would have been considered dovish just two weeks ago there's the camp that believes in the dovish hike meaning that the Fed will raise rates a quarter point and then signal a pause they'll pause the bulls say because they want to assess the impact of the current rate hikes and they want to assess any damage from the banking crisis. But there's another camp that's just as vocal that says the Fed won't hike at all. Jan Hatzius from Goldman Sachs is in that camp, for example. He says he expects the Fed to pause at its March meeting this week because of stress in the overall banking system. So the odds of a recession here go down if the Fed is no longer in tightening mode. That obviously would be bullish for stocks. So here's the bottom line. The market wants the Fed to prioritize the banking crisis instead of inflation. And the way to do that, of course, is to pause. So we're kind of in a game of chicken with the Fed. Are they going to blink or not? Back to you, John. Bob, thank you. For
0: more on this, let's bring in Michael Puglisi, senior economist at Wells Fargo. Michael, you think the Fed's going to hike or not?
6: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, John. And I think it's a close call. I wouldn't be surprised if they went zero or 25 basis points. But in my view, I think they're a little more likely to pause. I think for policymakers at the Federal Reserve right now, there's been a tremendous amount of uncertainty, volatility, stress in the financial system over the past couple weeks. But there's also been a pretty big policy response from officials. And I think they want to ensure that the medicine takes in the coming weeks so that they can resume monetary policy tightening at the May meeting and potentially even beyond that. You know, put another way, I think the last thing they want to do is worsen the financial system stress we've seen in week- recent weeks and then not allow them to get to a tighter monetary policy position down the road mm-hmm. to ensure their job on the inflation fight is complete.
0: But given that, does this banking crisis make it more or less likely that the inflation giant gets slain this year? I mean, if, if they back off too soon and this banking crisis is transitory, <laughs> Uh, then don't they have that much more to do for that much longer?
6: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's why, even though we have them pausing at the March meeting, we still have two more 25 basis point rate hikes in May and June, based off that exact idea that in the near term, there's still a lot of momentum in the economy, whether you look at the very strong pace of job growth over the past few months, consumer spending that continues to grow at a pretty solid clip, or inflation that's improving but is still running at a 4 to 5% pace through the kind of noise and trends. So, I think that's exactly right. And it's why I think the Fed will resume monetary policy tightening, even if they stop in March.
0: Well, what percentage chance do you think there is that the Fed actually has to stop altogether because the economy has slowed down that much that we really are heading into a recession in the near term? There's some people out there. I mean, the the Fed's going to have to cut uh, in the next couple quarters. Crowd is back. What's the percentage likelihood that that's the case?
6: Yeah, I think in the next quarter or two, it's probably a fairly low probability that they're easing, you know, 10 or 20 percent. But if you stretch that horizon out further, I think the probability goes up quite a bit. So we've had a recession in our forecast for sort of towards the end of this year since 2022. And and this is really only, I think, emboldened that call. So we've got monetary policy easing in our forecast around the end of the year. So while I don't think they'll be easing in May or June or July, if we're talking December or particularly 2024, I think that's probably over 50 percent.
0: Michael, does this regional bank crisis that we have been through are in? I mean, we'll see how far through it we are. Does it does it affect perhaps the type of landing that we get in this recession uh, that you're that you're expecting? Is it a deeper recession, perhaps, if the economy is slowing down more than we think? Because it's not just the Fed slowing it down. It's potentially these regional banks loaning out less.
6: Yeah, so I think my base case would still be a mild to moderate recession, but it certainly increases the potential error band or uncertainty. Hmm. You know, When I think about what characterizes mild or moderate recessions, like what we saw in, say, 2001, it's not a full-blown financial crisis, like we saw in 2008, 2009. And you know, our base case is certainly not for that to happen. But if it did, right, then I think we would we would certainly be deepening that recession call I referenced a moment ago. And we've only got unemployment peaking at five and a quarter or something like that, which is a relatively modest gain, uh, increase. So, um, you know, that's not my base case, but the probability has clearly gone up for that outcome relative to even just a couple weeks ago.
0: So how long do you think till we know? Is this is this a Q4 type thing? And then, uh, I mean, we haven't talked about the debt ceiling in a while. But based on the way this Congress started, that fight looks like it has the potential to be ugly. And if it is, it looks like it has the potential to have an impact on the markets and the economy. How much should we be thinking about that?
6: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll be monitoring the data. I mean, like I've referenced, there's been very strong economic data over the first few months of the year. Had the last couple weeks not happened in the financial system, we would be talking about 25 or 50 at this meeting and how much more tightening would need to happen. I think the data is really going to guide that. We can talk a lot right now in the moment about how much lending standards will tighten, how much impact that will have on the real economy. But the story will really be told as the months go by. And we see it in the labor market data, in the consumer spending data, in the consumer sentiment data, as earnings start. To roll in for later this year, and I think that's going to be a, a steady and cumulative process as we learn a lot more about how much tightening this imparted on the economy.
0: And that's sort of what I'm wondering, and I think you're you're getting to that point. Is it is it kind of a late Q3, early Q4 thing when you know if the chickens are coming home, <laughs> that, that's when they come, right? When we can see it took so long for the uh, effects of rate tightening to be obvious, for example, for Silicon Valley Bank. At what point? Do some of these impacts become more obvious for, you know, just just stocks that are dealing with uh, consumers and businesses?
6: Yeah, well, tighter monetary policy and just tighter financial conditions more broadly, they act with a lag. I mean, if we think back to the tightening cycle in 2004, 2006, the last Fed rate hike happened in June 2006. The economy didn't even enter a recession until December 2007, and, of course, it was until the fall of 2008 that, you know, the severity of that financial crisis really kind of hit its crescendo. So, you know, I think there are very clearly big lags when it comes to monetary policy. I mean, just think about the fact that a year ago, it was this meeting in March 2022 Mm. when the Fed hiked rates for the first time. Mm -hmm. They went from zero to 0.25 on the Fed funds target range, up 25 basis points so that, you know, rates were still very, very low and near zero. So it's been a tremendous amount of tightening in 12 months. I think there's probably a little more to go, regardless of what happens on Wednesday at this Fed meeting. But the, the impact that has on the economy is going to be lagged. And that's why you know we don't have a recession starting in our forecast until later this year, exactly as you just laid out, John.
0: Well, then I guess maybe, tell me if I'm wrong here, this might be a year in the Fed meeting when the amount of the hike matters least, whether it's nothing or it's 25 basis points. And in a way, it's more about the language. Is there a change in language about uh, how aggressive the the Fed needs to be, how data dependent they are? And um, I mean, I don't know if there's going to be any change in the expectation of the terminal rate, but maybe that too.
6: Yeah. I mean, I think there's going to be disagreement on the Federal Reserve as well. It's easy to talk about the Fed like it's one institution. But, you know, as we're reminded when, you know, the various Fed speakers are, are out there talking and expressing their views, you can have hawks and doves and folks all across that spectrum. And I think you're going to see that in these projections, whether it's for the terminal rate or the pace of easing over the next couple of years or projections about the economy, the inflation performance. I think you're going to see an even broader dispersion of uh, the results there in terms of the outlook and the forecast, and it's going to be challenging for Chair Powell to try to, you know, take that and form it into one cohesive view in the the FOMC statement and, of course, at the press conference afterwards.
0: Yeah, Hawks, Doves. We'll see what kind of birds we get. I think I saw some vultures last week with the banking situation. (laughs) Michael, thank you.
6: Thank you. Now
0: coming up a top strategist is going to explain what recent volatility in the bond market means for investors. Don't go anywhere. there's a lot more ahead on this CNBC special taking stock.
3: Coming up volatility in bonds speed bumps or a sign of road work ahead. plus go west and rest why tech may be the new flight to safety and mortgage rates in the selling season. Time to buy or a market gone dry when we return. Welcome back.
0: Fixed income is seeing its highest level of volatility since the 2008 financial crisis. That's according to the ICE B of A Move Index, which tracks bond market volatility. This as uncertainty rises over the Fed's next steps and how the banking crisis might affect the central bank's path. Let's bring in Gilbert Garcia, Managing Partner at Garcia Hamilton and Associates. Gilbert, welcome. Um, you say that the Fed raised rates too far or too fast and the odds of a recession are high, which I guess would mean rates would be coming down eventually. All of that sounds like reason to buy
3: bonds now and lock in uh, those yields, no? Well, no, first of all, thank you for having me. Normally, I would say yes, but, uh, but let me take one step back. Um, the amount of volatility in the bond market is historic. We haven't seen these this sort of moves where uh, you got 50 basis point decline in the two year, the five year, and the next day it's 25 higher and then it's 20 lower the very next day. This is very unusual and not normal. It is also not normal to see banks of this size. And while they may not be systemically uh, important, nevertheless, there are banks that are significant size going under. And I believe it all goes back to the Federal Reserve and the confusion that they're putting into the marketplace. I'll never forget when they first said on Friday or Saturday morning when I woke up, we're not going to intervene. And then they bailed them out. And then it was, we're going to bail them out, but we're going to make sure all the depositors are whole. That type of confusion is what creates this volatility because bond participants aren't sure where to go and what to do. But it sounds, despite all that, like you don't think
0: that rates are going a lot higher. It's just a question of when they go lower. Yeah,
3: that is correct. So let me go to that. First, if you go back in time, inflation in the fourth quarter of 21 was right around 6% or so. And they were continued at quantitative ease, right? And here we are. Inflation is where? 6% or so. And they just cannot tighten rates fast enough. And so it's kind of a very odd situation. They were late to raise rates, and now they're going to be very late to cut rates. And so there's just been this unusual rally because of this scare in the financial system that I think has been a little overdone. I expect to see rates go back some, especially after the Fed raises rates. And then ultimately, between now and the end of the year, we think rates are going to still be significantly lower when the recession appears.
0: Okay, so if you're not trying to time the market, the bond market even, uh, what are the types of bonds that you think folks should buy now
3: uh, to, to sort of sail past the volatility? Sure. I can tell you, in my career, there's been sort of two or three really great trades. And I got in the bond business in 85 The first, of course, was corporate bonds after Lehman and then, of course, corporate bonds after COVID. But what's amazing is one of the greatest opportunity is in the agency guaranteed mortgage backed securities market. Because if you look for the first time ever, almost the entire mortgage backed securities market is under par. And I mean, deep under par with many in the low 90s and even 80 dollar prices. When you have such low dollar prices. These bonds, which normally have negative convexity, which means their price doesn't go up like normal non callable bonds, they all of a sudden have positive convexity. You want prepayments, and they will go up even more than normal bonds. Okay. And so, in my view, that is one of the best trades I've ever seen in my career. So you got right an, now. You got an ETF or something for me? What's the most
0: straightforward way to play that if you're not trying to be a ninja?
3: Sure. I think the most straightforward way is to buy old fashioned and you can buy mortgage pools. There are mortgage ETFs, There are mortgage um, uh, mutual funds right now. That's the place to be. And the reason also is, remember, we were in a low rate environment for a while. So all these coupons refinanced and we created all these low coupons that have never existed before, like two, two and a half, three percent coupons and now when rates rose so much, those bonds fell like a rock, and now they're deep under par. And even at the worst case, which means no prepayments, you're out yielding treasuries by 50 to 60 basis points. It is a no-brainer, it is a great trade. I gotta think that through, but if you're expecting a recession and there's
0: gonna be job loss, doesn't that cause risk in mortgages too?
3: No, here's why, because remember, if you're, if you're expecting, not expecting, but if we think a recession is coming, what's going to happen? Rates are going to come down, and they're going to come down a lot. Mortgage rates are going to come down, and that will then lead to mortgage prepayments to start picking up. And remember, when a prepayment comes to me as a mortgage holder or normal principal amortization, I get it at par, meaning 100. So if I'm buying it at 90 and I'm getting par back, That's a bonanza. Uh, And remember, prepayments never go to zero because there's always a relocation rate, a divorce rate, a death rate, a bankruptcy rate. There's always going to be some activity. And so when rates come back down, which they will, we expect to see – Refis and things of that nature pick up again, and that will be a windfall for these mortgages.
0: All right, I'm going to have to go home and watch this back to make sure I get that. But outside of the mor- outside of the mortgages, what mm-hmm. else uh, in, sure. in bond land? Uh, Give me one yeah, more. Uh,
3: sure, I'll tell you what not to do. Okay, good. Stay away from credit, and I'll tell you why. Because here in this crisis, it is true that credit spreads have widened. What that means, that spreads widen, is they're underperforming Treasuries but they really haven't widened that much. They've only widened about 50 basis points or so on the year. Mm -hmm. And in our view, a normal recessionary type spread is another 50 to 100 wider, at least. And so in our view, if you're going to be in credit, you want to be in the highest of quality, the biggest of big cap names, because they will hold their value the best. All right. And so the best trades again. Number one, be long duration, especially if your horizon at least a year or so, because rates will be lower. Number two, buy mortgage-backed securities. Uh, frankly, anything in the mortgage market is attractive right now and pass-throughs. And number three, go up in quality and credit, because right now, a lot of the lower quality, there's um, so much uncertainty. There's so much uh, confusion by the Fed that ultimately spreads can gap like that. All right. Easy as one, two, three. Gilbert Garcia, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Now let's take another look at how the markets ended the day. Stocks getting a relief rally to kick off the week. The Dow jumping 382 points. The S&P climbing nearly 1%. The NASDAQ ending the day up nearly half a percent. And oil prices moving higher after hitting its lowest levels since 2021. Crude dropping to $64 per barrel at one point today before bouncing. Energy still the worst performing sector this year. Coming up with investors seeking safety in all this bank turmoil is tech, the place to hide. We are talking the sector and the stocks. And stay tuned for Last Call beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on CNBC. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tech's in focus as investors look forward to the next Fed meeting and what it's going to mean for the sector's recent rally. Take a look at big tech, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, all down for the day as Apple and Meta continue to rally. The sector also seeing news of big cost-cutting measures today with Amazon announcing more layoffs, another 9,000, while Apple's in a very different position, merely delaying bonuses last week. Joining us now is Paul Meeks, Portfolio Manager at Independent Solutions Wealth Management Paul, good to talk to you again. So what does defensive tech mean in 2023?
7: So one of the reasons that we outperformed last year is we had a heavy cash position. And also just because my investment style over the decades has been one where even within the tech sector, I focus on value. So now I'm incrementally more bullish on the sector. So I'm creeping back in investing some of that cash. But John, to answer your question directly, still playing pretty defensive which means you don't have to buy the fangs and more of the fangs i see some opportunities in smaller and mid-cap names i try to target what i think are the best most resilient industries right now i got the china reopening trade i have uh, data networking semiconductors but all about automobile and industrial applications cybersecurity. i think in those areas They're all gonna get dinged by a recession, and I do believe a recession's coming, Mm -hmm. but I think they will be relatively resilient.
0: Looking through your list, I don't see Amazon anywhere. They just did these cuts. It looks to me like Amazon's market cap is a little less than half of Microsoft's, even though Amazon's cloud business is still ahead of Microsoft's. Why is that?
7: Well, I think among the fangs, I prefer to be in Google for its relative valuation, Meta for its cost-cutting, Microsoft for its AI inevitable rebound in enterprise IT spending after we get through the recession. Amazon, I don't feel comfortable enough yet, particularly with the e-commerce business and because I do see a recession coming. And, John, as we do know, yes, they're still number one in uh, public cloud, but they're growing at a much slower rate. And if we start clocking for AWS quarter after quarter of 10 15% year-on-year revenue growth for that business, wow, I think the stock could go down even further. So I've stayed away from uh, that particular stock among the fangs, but I do have most of the other ones.
0: Okay, so you like Google and Microsoft. How much does the AI trajectory interest you, concern you, right? Because Satya Nadella is saying he wants to make the search giant dance over at Google, and if if margin has fallen out of Google's pockets while it's doing that dance, that wouldn't be good for investors.
7: No, that's an excellent point. I actually think the uh, demise of uh, Google as it pertains to AI is exaggerated. Yes, they absolutely screwed up the PR on the launch, but they come to the dance with 93% share in search, and of course, Microsoft has three. So Microsoft could take a gamble, you know, pre-announcing a product because they had only upside. Whereas if Google comes out with a shoddy product, they have all the downside. So I think uh, over time, Google will be in the A.I. space. They'll be there with it proliferated through all of their products. They will be just fine. They will be a nice, fast follower rather than the leader. But as far as the early going, yes, uh, Satya Nadella, a much better salesman. Yes, they handled the PR of the A.I. launch better than not only. Google, but also uh, Baidu, probably the other big player to come in China.
0: Now, uh, in in semiconductors, I see you got some plays in here you're looking at for auto and industrial. Um, Microchip, NXPI, Broadcom among them. I don't see Qualcomm in there. uh, And I'm curious how you are determining who you expect to get the most benefit out of that re-platforming of the car.
7: So I think with Qualcomm specifically, I am very interested because they are morphing the company to embrace uh, industrial applications, including the automobile. So over time, I fully expect it to be on that list. I think the company is pretty well run. But as we go through the transition, of course, until uh, further notice, they're going to be heavily exposed to the smartphone market. So I want to see a couple of more quarters for Qualcomm when they potentially downsize on smartphones, the stock gets lower, then I expect to swoop in for the auto and industrial apps uh, transition. In the meantime, the other companies are doing better in the space and they don't have the legacy anchor of smartphone units falling, not just in the US, but worldwide.
0: Okay, and in cybersecurity, I see uh, Fortinet and Palo Alto networks here don't see Zscaler or CrowdStrike, for example, how are you uh, balancing the the platform play in enterprise cyber versus kind of the networking play?
7: Yeah, excellent question. Again, so I've been a little bit hesitant on buying cyber stocks, not because I don't think it's a mega theme. I, of course, I absolutely do. However, you know my style is pretty much value oriented, so I'm going to outperform in bear markets and underperform in bull. And it's hard for me with most of these stocks, including to step in and buy them, even if things are going great at 30, 40, 50, 60 times earnings. And so purely, John, on a valuation basis, relative valuation basis, and because I think that they're going to continue to beat numbers, I went with those two instead of the group of all four.
0: Interesting. Uh, Along those lines on cyber, is Okta a cyber stock? Is it something else because it's into identity? How do you parse some of these things? It's getting more diverse in cyber.
7: Yeah, I think Okta is uh a interesting play. Obviously in you know the introduction, the uh, onboarding. Uh the problem is, you know, they've had some grisly quarters. Now they upsided the last quarter. Yeah. But they had badly missed some previous quarters. I just don't trust them, or at least I just don't trust them enough yet.
0: Okay. Paul Meeks, we took a long trip there around a lot of different parts of tech. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. All right, we got a lot more coming your way on the CNBC special. Taking stock, mortgage rates for home purchases have fallen significantly over the last week. What does that mean for your most valuable asset? That is next. Welcome back with mortgages tumbling, the rates following several bank failures. It should be good news for home buyers, but. With all eyes on the Fed this week, could there be more to the story? Our own Diana Olick joins us to track the latest moves.
8: Mortgage rates have been on a roller coaster to start this year, especially in the last week. And today is the first day of spring, usually the busiest season for housing. So to give you an idea of the mortgage effect, the average rate on the 30-year fixed went over 7% last October, stalling home sales. Rates then came down in January, causing a brief surge in demand, especially for the homebuilders, who saw sales jump an unexpected 8% for the month. Then rates shot back up in February, giving home buyers sticker shock yet again. This home in the Cleveland suburbs went on the market at the end of February, and nobody even showed up for the first open house, so they dropped the price, $100,000, to meet buyer budgets.
6: The mortgage percentage has lowered our, like, original range
8: that we were looking in. Like, originally it was like 400,000. Now we're looking more in like the 300,000s. Mortgage rates then dropped about a half a percentage point when the bank crisis hit and have hovered around 6.5% ever since. But rates are still two percentage points higher than they were at the start of last spring, making the monthly payment on an average home just over $400 more. And home prices, well, they've pulled back some since last summer, but nationally, they're still up just over 5% from a year ago. It still remains to be seen how the regional bank stresses will impact mortgage rates going forward. That's up to the Fed now. But bigger picture, overall concern in banking will impact already very weak consumer confidence in the housing market. John. All right, last call starts now.